BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It's time for Justice Matters with former federal prosecutor and MSNBC analyst, Glenn Kirshner. This time on our weekend long-form podcast, Glenn gives us the latest updates on Donald Trump's legal battles. Thank you for joining me on my Justice Matters podcast. We've got a lot to talk about because we are now in the era of the Trump trials. Here's where I cue the Trump trials theme music. So there sure have been some developments, both in and out of court, that we'll be discussing today. And I don't know about you, friends, but I feel like I've been on a justice roller coaster, right? One day we're up, and the next day we're down, then we get to the top of the hill, and that roller coaster begins the plunge, and it takes hairpin turns, and just when you think you're sort of pulling into the station and getting ready to unbuckle your seatbelt, the ride takes you back up again. And that's what we've been experiencing on this quest for accountability for the crimes of Trump and company. One minute we learn Donald Trump is federally indicted for the many crimes he committed involving classified documents, national security materials, national defense information, which, when mishandled, is a violation of our nation's espionage laws. And then the next minute, we learn that the one judge who is probably least well-positioned to preside over Trump's case, and that's a generous description, least well-positioned, to preside over the criminal case of the United States of America versus Donald Trump, Judge Aileen Cannon will be the presiding judge, at least for the moment. Do you ever feel like you get justice whiplash? You know, but I guess nobody ever said accountability was going to be easy or arrive promptly, smoothly, without any ups and downs or hairpin turns or false starts or back steps. You know, nobody ever said justice was going to be easy. But we will continue to fight to see that justice is achieved. And today, friends, I want to look at the legal developments of the week through the lens of not just justice, but, but of equal justice. And we're going to focus for the most part today on Trump's criminal case and on the many problems presented by the fact that Judge Cannon is presiding over Trump's case. And let me just say, you know, I think the term equal justice is probably redundant, right? Because it ain't justice if it ain't equal. So maybe we don't really need to put the word equal in front of the word justice. But, you know, even if justice is achieved in an individual case, looking at just one case in isolation, in a vacuum. So for example, you have somebody who is tried for a crime, a crime they committed, the evidence of guilt is strong, the trial is fair, the defense attorney representing the defendant is competent and zealous and dedicated, the judge who presides over the trial does everything right correctly applies the rules of law and the rules of evidence and the rules of procedure, and the jury convicts the defendant because the evidence proves the defendant's guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, and the victim's rights are vindicated and the community is protected, 
And when I describe a case like that, I think we can probably conclude justice was done. Now, let's add to that hypothetical case that I just described. Let's add one fact, that the defendant in that case was poor or was a person of color, was a person without any connections in the political world, was a person without any real influence or power. And then in a courtroom next door to that courtroom that I've just described, you have the same trial, largely the same criminal charges, largely the same supporting evidence, and the case is tried, and the defendant is found not guilty. But that defendant in courtroom number two is rich, is influential, connected, is white. Now, when you look at those two cases as a batch or a group, one in which the defendant is found guilty, one in which a defendant is found not guilty, basically same crime, same evidence. Would you say that what I've described represents equal justice or justice at all? I think it represents neither. You know, even if in trial number one, everything was done right and on the up and up and in, the, in accordance with the evidence and a guilty verdict was returned, and in isolation, it may look like justice. If there's a different result in the courtroom next door, under the same circumstances, same charges, same evidence, you know, it doesn't feel like equal justice, does it? Now, I know that's a very simplistic kind of dichotomy that I've set up. It's simplistic, but you know what, friends? It also happens to be realistic at the moment. Here's why I say it's realistic at the moment. We have a pretty concrete example of what I've just described, not identical to what I've just described, but we have two cases in the news presently involving people who have been indicted for violating our nation's espionage laws for mishandling national defense information. One of those people is powerless, is not wealthy, is not connected, is not influential, his name is Jack Teixeira. He's a 21-year-old National Guardsman who was just indicted for violating our nation's espionage laws. You have another defendant who is wealthy, powerful, influential, connected, who was just indicted for violating our nation's espionage laws. That would be Donald Trump. Jack Teixeira was arrested and thrown in jail where he will remain until he is tried. Donald Trump waltzed into court, waltzed back out with nary a condition or restriction placed on him, and he's off to his third-rate resort to hold a fundraiser and throw dinner parties and make statements, false statements, dangerous statements that poison the well of public opinion, indeed poison potential future jury pools, that put people in harm's way like prosecutors and judges and their families and witnesses and jurors. Same crimes, same danger to the community, to our national security, represented by each of those two defendants. Not identical dangers to the community these two people present. I contend Donald Trump is probably far more dangerous, presents a far greater risk to our community and our society and our democracy than Jack Teixeira. So is that equal justice? Doesn't feel like it, doesn't look like it. Now friends, I'm not saying that Jack Teixeira should not be detained pending trial. A judge found he was a danger to the community, and therefore he should be detained pending trial. Makes sense to me. Donald Trump is also a danger to the community. He should be detained pending trial if we care about equal justice and equal application of the laws. You know, friends, I was so hopeful when during his inaugural address, 
Joe Biden said the following. A cry for racial justice, some 400 years in the making, moves us. The dream of justice for all will be deferred no longer. You know, friends, I still get goosebumps when I read that and when I think back to it, and I don't mind admitting I shed a tear when President Biden said it the first time. But where are we on that promise, on that pledge, on that aspiration? Coming up, will the indictment of Donald Trump in the classified documents case affect the prosecution of him in the Georgia election tampering case? Glenn explains next on Justice Matters. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Georgia Attorney General Fawny Willis says that she'll go forward with her case regardless of how things progress in the classified documents case. How will that play out? Here's Glenn. Okay, I really don't want to be all gloom and doom because, look, it ain't no small potatoes that Donald Trump stands indicted in not just one, but in two criminal cases, one in New York and one in Florida, and he's about to be thrice indicted. It's a fancy word, right? Thrice indicted, something I would never say in front of my jury. But he will be indicted for a third time, in my opinion, in Fulton County, Georgia, by District Attorney Fawny Willis, who said, and I quote, Donald Trump's federal indictment will not impact our prosecution. That's what Fawny Willis said about her prosecution that we'll probably see indictments in August. So he will be indicted a third time and then Frankly, in the biggest indictment of all, he'll be indicted a fourth time for the insurrection. Maybe a fifth time for his mishandling of classified materials and national defense information in New Jersey. Put a pin in that. But he will be indicted for the insurrection, in my opinion. As you've probably heard me say before, friends, I am not a betting man. I am not a high roller. One dollar is my betting limit. I will bet a buck that Jack Smith will indict Donald Trump for the insurrection. So at this moment in our nation's history, the most consequential prosecution ever is the federal prosecution of a criminal former president, Donald Trump, for endangering our national security by stealing and unlawfully retaining and compromising classified information, national defense information, but that case is about to become the second most consequential prosecution in our nation's history as soon as Jack Smith indicts Trump for the insurrection. And he will. Why do I say he will? Why would I bet my one dollar on it? Well, because if he doesn't, if the Department of Justice fails to hold Donald Trump accountable for the crimes he inarguably committed on January 6th, then every four years we'll look exactly like January 6, 2021 looked. Because if Donald Trump is not held accountable, that is the Department of Justice giving permission, giving the green light, giving encouragement to the loser of every presidential election to do exactly what Donald Trump did on January 6th and then some. And I don't think our country can survive another January 6th like Donald Trump orchestrated in 2021. So Trump will be indicted for the attempted violent overthrow of our government, for his attempt to retain the power of the presidency unlawfully and unconstitutionally. I'm sure of it. 
But let's go back to our discussion about equal justice, because I don't think it's playing out at the moment. I don't think equal justice is alive and well when you look at a powerless 21-year-old National Guardsman who violated our nation's espionage laws sitting in a jail cell until his trial date versus a former president of the United States who violated our nation's espionage laws, throwing dinner parties and holding fundraisers and not sitting in a jail cell until his trial date. Any way you slice it, friends, that is deeply unjust and unfair. It's disparate treatment. It's not equal application of the law, and therefore it's not justice. And if it ain't equal justice, then it's no kind of justice at all. And along the same lines, equal justice, we have to look at the fact that Judge Aileen Cannon at the moment is the presiding judge in the Donald Trump trial, the federal Trump trial. That is a problem. Why is it a problem? Well, it's a problem for three reasons. Now, not all of these reasons are disqualifying in and of themselves, but in combination, they are entirely disqualifying. And actually, I think one of them is disqualifying under the federal law, which we're gonna talk about in a minute. But let me start with the three reasons that I believe Judge Cannon continuing to preside over the Trump trial is a serious problem. One, Donald Trump appointed Judge Cannon. Donald Trump is the one who gave Judge Cannon her lifetime appointment as a federal judge. One of the most wonderful jobs, one of the most wonderful benefits a person can bestow on a lawyer. You now have a lifetime appointment as a federal judge with all of the perks and the prestige that comes with that position. Now generally, who appoints a judge is not really relevant to whether the judge should sit on a particular case, right? Even if there are sort of deeply and intensely political cases in our courts, and there occasionally are, right, with Republicans on one side of the litigation and Democrats on the other side of the litigation, like when Congress is fighting over the enforceability of congressional subpoenas, it doesn't really matter if the judge was appointed by a Republican or a Democrat. It's not disqualifying. It may be relevant, it may be interesting, it may cause a judge to lean one way or another, but it's not disqualifying. However, where we find ourselves now is for the first time in our nation's history, a criminal former president of the United States is the defendant, is the one being prosecuted. This is an unprecedented, singular, unique circumstance. And it seems to me that the judge who was appointed by the defendant, by the criminal former president on trial shouldn't preside over the defendant's case because the defendant is the one who gave her the position. The judge enjoys lifetime tenure as a federal judge and owes that to Donald Trump. I think we as a society, we as a criminal justice system should decide that's a conflict. I mean, my goodness, if that circumstance doesn't give rise to reasonable questions about her impartiality and reasonable attacks that, you know what, it seems like she's doing favors for Donald Trump as the litigant in this case, that, you know, she wouldn't necessarily do for other defendants who didn't appoint her to her lifetime position as a federal judge. These are issues that I think we need to discuss openly and robustly and see if it doesn't make sense that that's kind of disqualifying in these unique circumstances. Now, there will be many who disagree with me, and, and I get that. I think this is worth a robust discussion. And I'll talk in a few minutes more about our conflict laws and, frankly, how they militate in favor of 
a judge removing themselves from a case in which there is not just a conflict, but even the appearance of conflict, such that it would undermine the public's confidence in the fairness of the process and the reliability of the outcome. Coming up next, Glenn gives us yet another reason why Judge Eileen Cannon should step away from Trump's classified documents case. This is Justice Matters. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey, and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. Many people say Judge Aileen Cannon should recuse herself from presiding over Donald Trump in the espionage court case. Glenn has more reasons why this should happen. Now, here's problem number two, friends. It is Judge Cannon's inexperience. This one is not disqualifying in and of itself, but let's talk about it for a minute. You know, Judge Cannon is what we in prosecutorial circles would probably refer to as a baby judge. Now, that's not a derogatory term. I know it sounds kind of smart alecky. We use it for judges, whether they're male or female, who are brand new to the bench and still kind of cutting their judicial teeth because they haven't really tried many cases and they certainly haven't tried any, you know, big major complex cases. And it's a term that Frankly, we used to use at my old office, the DC U.S. Attorney's Office, when new batches of prosecutors would come in, would go through training, would go through in-processing. Training, I will say, was given by the senior prosecutors, what we often called the old heads, the veterans. Yes, I was among them, and I gave lots of training classes to the baby prosecutors when they came in, and that's what we called them, uh, new class of baby prosecutors come in. Yes, it's a little smart aleck equip. It's not intended to be derogatory or insulting, but just as we talked about baby prosecutors, the, the newbies, you know, people talk about baby judges, new judges, inexperienced judges who are new to the bench. And Judge Cannon is a baby judge, right? She is relatively new to the federal bench. She's presided over only four short trials. I mean, each one reportedly lasted a couple or a few days. She's still cutting her judicial teeth. She's still getting her judicial legs under her. And the fact that she will now be assigned to preside over what will be a very big, very complex, very politically fraught and legally challenging trial, a trial, a case that is of unique importance to our nation, you know, and she'll be presiding over that trial where the defendant gave her her job. I know I mentioned that already, but I'm going to probably come back to it frequently because to me, it is of enormous concern on the conflict front. But the fact that she's so inexperienced, you know, makes her less than ideally suited to preside over this case, though I'll add again, not disqualifying. So, By way of analogy, can you imagine 
if there was a baby doctor, I don't mean a pediatrician, I mean a brand new physician, somebody who just graduated and you know just began in their practice as a physician, maybe they had only seen a few patients, they had only treated a couple of scraped knees, and that was it. And then all of a sudden, somebody thrust them into the operating room to perform complex brain surgery. That ain't gonna end well. And my concern is the Trump trial ain't gonna end well with Judge Eileen or Aileen Cannon presiding. So that's the second problem. Inexperience, not disqualifying, but a significant concern. Problem number three is the most significant problem of all. And it really goes hand in hand with presiding over a case where the defendant gave you the job, so you're in a position to preside over the defendant's case. Kind of mind-blowing. And problem number three is, in this very matter, involving these very classified documents that Donald Trump is now on trial for having mishandled and unlawfully retained and refused to give back and obstructed justice to keep hold of what he had no business having, never mind retaining, Judge Cannon previously presided in a case over those documents, and in that case, she acted unlawfully, contrary to the law. When I say she acted contrary to the law, that's not my opinion. That's the opinion of the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals that reversed her ruling, a ruling in which she did an enormous favor for Donald Trump that the law did not permit her to do. After the FBI executed the search warrant at Mar-a-Lago and seized the evidence of crime, the documents, the evidence of crime for which Donald Trump is now on trial, Donald Trump ran to the court, ran to Judge Cannon, filed a suit and said, stop the Department of Justice from investigating my crimes with respect to these documents. And friends, what was really a remarkable pronouncement from Judge Cannon, she said, Donald Trump should be treated differently, differently than everybody else. The rule of law does not apply equally to Donald Trump. Donald Trump is entitled to favored status and favorable treatment. I am paraphrasing, but it was such an absurd pronouncement. It was so contrary to the entire understanding of our justice system and of our constitutional construct that here's what the appellate court said about that. The 11th Circuit Court of Appeals said, quote, the law is clear we cannot write a rule that allows any subject of a search warrant to block government investigations after the execution of the warrant, nor can we write a rule that allows only former presidents to do so." Close quote. So friends, Judge Cannon's impartiality or you know, more precisely, her lack of partiality, her partiality in favor of Donald Trump can and should be questioned. And here's the thing, that is precisely what the federal law says requires disqualification of a judge, when his or her impartiality can reasonably be questioned. So let's look at the federal law, very short paragraph, the federal statute regarding disqualification of a judge. It can be found at 28 United States Code, section 455, for those of you scoring at home, disqualification of a judge. And here is how it reads. Any justice judge or magistrate judge of the United States, any judge shall disqualify himself I'm going to add, or herself, in any proceeding in which their impartiality might reasonably be questioned. Short, sweet, to the point, and mandatory. They shall disqualify themselves in any proceeding in which their impartiality might reasonably be questioned. 
And here's what's most important about that statute, about that language, about that legal standard that sets out when a judge shall, must, disqualify themselves. It's a very low bar. It's a very low legal standard. You don't have to prove Judge Cannon cannot be fair. You don't have to prove that Judge Cannon is not impartial. The law doesn't require any of that to be proved. The law simply says if a judge's impartiality can reasonably be questioned, they shall disqualify themselves. Here's why that standard is so low. You know, there is a reason that disqualification is required. Even if a judge can be fair, but their impartiality could reasonably be questioned. The reason is there are countless other federal judges who are completely impartial, who are completely uninvolved, and whose impartiality therefore cannot possibly be questioned the way Judge Cannon's impartiality can. You know, there's no harm in having a potentially conflicted judge remove herself from the case and a completely uninvolved, neutral, independent judge stepping on the case and handling it. Frankly, that only makes sense for the legitimacy of the proceedings and the reliability of the result. So an honest application of that law that I just read, Section 455, in my opinion, requires Judge Cannon to disqualify herself. It's not discretionary, it's mandatory. She shall disqualify herself, but it looks like she won't. Why do I say that? Well, because an order was just issued by Judge Cannon, who has opted apparently not to disqualify herself because she's ordering the parties, the prosecutors, the defense counsel to do certain things at certain times and certify that they've done them. Specifically, she told the defense attorneys to coordinate with the Department of Justice so they can begin the process of getting the defense attorneys the security clearances they need to review these classified materials and then report back to the judge that they have done that. So given that at least as of right now, she's presiding and she's issuing orders. And I think that leads to the reasonable inference that she ain't gonna disqualify herself. She's going to ignore 28 United States Code Section 455. So now that means Jack Smith has a decision to make. I don't happen to think it's a difficult decision. Others may disagree with me. I think what Jack Smith should do now, indeed I think he must do because this is too important a case for him not to do it, I think he has to file a motion to disqualify her, a motion to recuse, a motion to have her remove herself from the case because look, she's already been found by the appellate court to have acted lawlessly previously to the extreme advantage of Donald Trump. Therefore. Her impartiality can reasonably be questioned. And if Jack Smith files the motion to try to get her to remove herself from the case and she denies the motion, it's off to the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals and they must litigate the question of whether she needs to be removed from the case by the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. And I certainly believe she should be removed. Coming up, Glenn has some good news stories, next on Justice Matters. Some of the news about Trump isn't all bad. Here's Glenn with a few good stories. Okay, so now let's turn to some good news, friends, because I feel like that was a lot of gloom and doom. You know, having an unfair, inexperienced, conflicted judge presiding over the most important criminal case in our nation's history, well, it is an ideal. So I wanted to air that out at some length and in some depth because we will be dealing with this topic, I think for quite some time now, unless and until Judge Cannon removes herself or is removed by the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. But you know what, there are some good news stories. 
and I don't know that they necessarily like jump out at us as being good news stories, but let's touch on a couple of them. First of all, Donald Trump's second arraignment after his second criminal indictment, and there was no violence. Really, almost nobody attended, but there was no civil unrest, right? His second criminal indictment and his second criminal arraignment, court appearance in that case, and there was no civil unrest, no violence, no disturbance, right? His first criminal indictment and arraignment came in New York. We saw that. And there was, you know, a little bit of a crowd, not a huge crowd. There were perhaps more anti-Trump folk than pro-Trump folk at Donald Trump's New York arraignment, but that was relatively violence-free. I mean, no civil unrest to speak of. Now we've had his second indictment, his second arraignment down in Florida. And I watched the news coverage, friends. It was a pitifully small crowd, right? It looked like, you know, there were some pro-Trump people there, some anti-Trump people there, but the crowd was kind of minuscule. And I didn't see or hear of any violence reported, any civil unrest. You know, it felt much more like a, a very tiny circus had rolled into town and pitched a tent. There were a few clowns, maybe one animal act, and then they folded up their tent and they left. You know, there really was little showing of support for Donald Trump. So what can we take away from that? Well, Trump has now twice been indicted, twice been arraigned, twice been presented in criminal court, once in New York and once in Florida, and it was entirely uneventful. You know, and Donald Trump tried to encourage people to come to New York for my court appearance, for my arraignment. I'm going to be arrested. Come to Florida. Fight like hell, or maybe I'll be arraigned, you know, come to Florida, we'll be wild. Okay, I'm making up the last part, but, you know, isn't that always kind of Donald Trump's messaging and subtext, come fight for me? And looks like there ain't nobody coming to fight for Donald Trump anymore, right? He tried to hold a violent rally and nobody showed up. That's a good development. You know, friends, I have long maintained that January 6th was lightning in a bottle, a unique confluence of circumstances that erupted into violence and it was organized and it was orchestrated and it was launched by Donald Trump. But in my own pop psychology view of things, no, I'm not a, I'm not an authority on psychology, pop or otherwise, but you know, it always seemed to me that the people who came to DC on January 6th and ended up attacking the Capitol did so because they were convinced by Donald Trump's lies that their pocket had been picked. Their vote had been stolen. Their election had been rigged. Their favorite hateful president was wrongfully being taken from them. And those were the lies, the provable lies, the demonstrable lies that inspired people, some people, to come to D.C. for a wild time on January 6th, and then they obeyed Donald Trump's command to go to the Capitol, fight like hell or you won't have a country anymore. Now go stop the certification, stop the steal. We know they're all lies. They've been proven 10 times over, including by Donald Trump's own executive branch officials and agencies, all of whom and all of which said there was no fraud undermining Joe Biden's election win. And when Donald Trump lied and lied and lied and lied like a mantra, right? A mantra, stop the steal, stop the steal. Rigged election, rigged election. You know, that burrowed into the skulls of the people who were either unwilling or unable to separate fact from fiction, separate lies from the truth. And that, I think, is why people felt like they had a personal stake in the outcome, a personal grievance on January 6th, a personal dog in the fight, because their vote had been stolen, their election had been rigged. So I kind of felt like it was a little bit of lightning in a bottle, and I think, and I hope, that is proving to be true, because ain't nobody showing up to fight like 
hell for Donald Trump to stop his arraignment, not in New York, not in Florida. And I think it will be kind of diminishing returns with the more indictments and the more arraignments. People are going to become even less interested in fighting for Donald Trump. Let's face it, the people who fought for him on January 6th, the people he commanded to go to the Capitol and fight like hell and stop the certification, stop the steal, lots of them are sitting in prison, lots of them are pending trial, lots more are going to be arrested. And they're paying the price. Donald Trump is not, not yet, but he will. So that I think is a good news story. Donald Trump's influence, his profile, his ability to inspire the hateful to come fight for him is waning and he's losing support. And I think we are less likely to see violence and civil unrest at Donald Trump court cases and court hearings moving forward. That's a good thing. Now, one other good news story, and I'll finish with this one. This one may not jump out at you intuitively, but I do think it's a, a good development. I was surprised to see that there was only one co-defendant indicted together with Donald Trump, his so-called body man, his personal valet, his you know main box mover, Walt Nauda. Nauda has been indicted. You know, he was part and parcel of Donald Trump's crimes of unlawfully concealing boxes, moving them around, trying to avoid not only having the federal authorities find them, but he was hiding them from his own lawyers, his own lawyers who were trying to find the classified documents so they could return them to the federal government and not violate the subpoena and protect Donald Trump's interests. Donald Trump was hiding those boxes from his own lawyers and lying to his lawyers. That's mind-boggling. But what we saw when the indictment was unsealed, there's only one co-defendant in there, Walt Nauda. What can we take away from the fact that there's only one co-defendant who's been indicted together with Donald Trump when don't we kind of know intuitively that there were probably lots of other people involved in facilitating Donald Trump's crimes, in assisting Donald Trump in committing his crimes, in aiding and abetting Donald Trump's crimes, maybe even conspiring with Donald Trump to commit those crimes. It can't just be Walt is the only other guilty party. It can be, but it doesn't seem likely. Well, here is one possibility for why there was only one co-defendant that popped up in that indictment. Beyond a possibility, it may actually be a likelihood that other people who were culpably involved, in other words, who could have been indicted together with Trump as co-defendants for assisting him in these classified documents crimes, those other people may already have cooperated and flipped. And therefore, they didn't need to be named in the indictment as co-conspirators. So if there are people out there who were criminally involved in Trump's you know, scheme and conduct, they could have pleaded guilty to their own crimes. They could have agreed to testify truthfully against Donald Trump at trial, assist the prosecutors in their investigative efforts and in the prosecution, and all of that could be under seal. In other words, it's not yet public. We would sometimes take guilty pleas under seal and they would remain under seal until that defendant slash cooperating witness had to testify at trial. And that you know could be six months to a year down the road. And you unseal the guilty plea with cooperation in advance of the trial. You provide it to the defense so they can cross-examine the witness with it. But for all we know, there could be any number of folks who were involved in Trump's crimes other than Walt Nauda who have pleaded guilty and are cooperating, right? Maybe it's just old Walt hanging fast with my man Donald happy to go down with, you know, his cr criminal espionage ship. Now, another possibility is that nobody else was charged because nobody else was criminally involved in Donald Trump's crimes. Maybe Trump and Walt did it all themselves. So there are no other co-defendants to be charged. I think that's a less 
likely possibility, but it's certainly a possibility. And here's the last observation, which kind of dovetails with the topic of who else might have kind of been sucked into what was going on down at Mar-a-Lago, who was and was not a member of the Mar-a-Lago Mafia. This last observation is, is kind of the good news cherry on top of the Sunday, or the cherry on top of the good news Sunday. I'm not sure which way that goes. When you look at the witnesses against Donald Trump, who are referred to in that federal indictment that was recently unsealed, they're not named, but they are referred to. They are designated as Trump attorney number one, Trump attorney number two, Trump attorney number three, Trump employee number one, Trump employee number two. You know, Donald Trump is always yelling and screaming about how everybody against him is an angry Democrat. Well, you know what? Based on this indictment, it looks like almost all of the sharply incriminating witnesses, of the deeply damaging witnesses against Donald Trump are his own lawyers and former lawyers and employees and former employees. You know, it's one thing when you try to prove a criminal case against somebody with a bunch of witnesses who have a real beef with the defendant, have a grudge, you know, have a pre-existing dispute that makes them want to testify against the defendant and maybe even lie about the defendant, put some stuff on him that he didn't do. It can be challenging when you have people who have an obvious antipathy toward the defendant because those people can be cross-examined with, you hate my client. You've always been in a feud and a beef and a disagreement with my client, so of course you're going to come in here and testify that he did all these horrible things. Not because he did them, but because it is the beef you have against my client playing out in living color. It's a very different trial when you have the defendant's own lawyers and employees, lawyers in particular who were fighting tooth and nail to protect the rights of Donald Trump, come in and testify against and about the crimes of Donald Trump. That's a whole different trial. It's a very strong trial on the evidence. And I thought to myself when I read that indictment, this kind of is reminiscent of what we saw in the January 6th House Select Committee public hearings when everybody who was testifying about Trump's crimes were Republicans. I don't know that a single Democrat testified. There may have been some. But the main, most damaging witnesses against Donald Trump were Republicans. And yes, Donald Trump then makes up a name for them. Well, they're rhinos, Republicans in name only. Really, I mean, everybody who deigns to disclose any incriminating information against Donald Trump is either an angry Democrat or a rhino or not to be believed for some reason or another is crazy, you're a, you're a communist, you're this, you're that. Yeah, no, friends, none of that is gonna play well at trial. That dog will not hunt. Hopefully Donald Trump will be tried by a judge whose impartiality can't be questioned, the judge other than Judge Cannon. And once it gets to trial, it is going to be a very, very, very strong case on the evidence. And yes, there are still hurdles in front of us. We're still on the justice roller coaster, no doubt. Hold on tight, you know, strap in, buckle up because it's gonna be a wild ride. And one of the next hurdles that will have to be overcome, and it's a significant one, is the ability to pick a fair and impartial jury to sit in judgment of Donald Trump, particularly in deeply red Florida. And we will talk about that at length, because what I can tell you is in my 30 years prosecuting cases in court, I picked a lot of juries in some high profile cases including RICO cases, lots of murder cases, obstruction cases. I mean, I could go on and on in the kind of cases, conspiracy cases. Never a, you know, such a politically high profile trial like we are dealing with now, a former criminal, former president. Of course, nobody alive has picked a jury in a case like that. 
There are some analogies, certainly the Paul Manafort case. We're going to talk in the future about how prosecutors can and will select a jury that can fairly and impartially try the case and resolve the case, decide the case based only on the evidence they see during the course of the trial and not any preconceived notions, not any pretrial exposure, not any ideology, not any political affiliation, not any biases or prejudices for or in favor of any person or party. It can be done. It can be done. And I'm confident it will be done. And friends, we're going to talk about jury selection in the weeks to come. But I think we're going to wrap up our discussion today. And I'm simply going to say, if you want to find me elsewhere, you can go to my YouTube channel, Justice Matters with Glenn Kirshner. Seven days a week, we put a legal analysis video up there trying to identify, talk about, analyze the most pressing legal issue of the day. Seven days a week, it's a, it's a heavy lift, but you know what? We're in this fight for the long haul. You can also find me on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter at Glenn Kirshner 2 my name in the number two. Obviously, in this audio podcast, Justice Matters, it posts on the weekend, the long format version, but it also posts throughout the week, so you can find it wherever you ordinarily find your podcasts. And then finally, if you have any interest in more formally supporting our all-volunteer efforts here at Justice Matters, please feel free to head over to patreon.com. You can sign up to become a patron. If you do, I'll send you some Team Justice and Justice Matters stickers and a handwritten note of thanks. You'll also get some behind-the-scenes looks at, you know, how we do what we do every day here at Justice Matters, kind of fighting for justice as best we can. So friends, as always, please stay safe, please stay tuned, and I look forward to talking with you all again soon.